So what I'll do is I'll read 2 Kings 4 and then I'll pray. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbours, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour into all these vessels, and when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. One day Elisha went to, on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God, who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls, and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, See, you've taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king, or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son, about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown up, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, O oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. 
When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not reply. Sorry, do not greet them. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. They poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in this pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men, that they may eat. There was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Well, now we're going to read 2 Kings 5, and it says this. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man, with his master and in high favour. Because by the Lord... 
because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valia, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one hand of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God, to kill and to make alive? This man sends word to me, to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking or quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfpah, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he bought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman was someone, 
saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. When he came to the hill, he took them from the hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you, and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper, like snow. Well, we're going to have a look at that passage in a moment. Before we do, just a few things to mention. Do be aware of question time coming up. At the end, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've been thinking about this morning. There's the sermon outline in your service sheet, which you can use if that's helpful. And then finally, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that we have recorded here. And we thank you for the acts of Elisha. But as we reflect on these things... We pray, Lord, that we, our minds will be drawn to you. As Elisha is your representative and he draws our attention away from him to you, just like he did with Naaman. So we pray, Lord, as we reflect on these things, we might know you better. Understand your redemptive plan. See how all these things are fulfilled through your son, Jesus. And be aware that you are the only God in all the earth. Amen. In Luke chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Having asserted this, Jesus gives a couple of examples to support his statement. First, he draws his hearers' attention to the numerous widows that lived in Israel during the great famine of Elijah's day. And yet Elijah was sent to a widow, not from Israel, but from Sidon, a Gentile. Next, Jesus speaks of the many lepers that lived in Israel during the time of Elisha. However, none of them were cleansed. But it was a Syrian leper called Naaman that was healed. Another Gentile. 
Ironically, having literally just told the people a prophet is not acceptable in his hometown, his own people grab Jesus and attempt to throw him off the brow of a hill. In their anger, from what Jesus has accused them of, they prove him to be right. If you remember back in Genesis, and particularly the account of Joseph, what we see there is that Pharaoh is highly blessed. Have you ever wondered why Pharaoh was given those two dreams, the one of the cows and the one of the corn? Why didn't God give the dream to Jacob if it was going to be the means by which God would sustain his people through the famine? Well, the problem would be there'd be no one to interpret the dream had it been given to Jacob. Because Joseph, the interpreter of dreams, well, he was in Egypt. And so the presence of Joseph in Egypt would mean Pharaoh will be blessed. God gave Pharaoh the dream because Joseph was carrying the promise of blessing. And since Pharaoh is associated with Joseph, Pharaoh himself is blessed. When Pharaoh realises that Joseph has interpreted the dream, he takes him from prison and raises him to the highest position. So apart from Pharaoh, there is no one in Egypt who is greater than Joseph. Pharaoh blesses Joseph. What follows is, Pharaoh is greatly blessed. Which causes us to bring to mind Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you, I will curse. So early on, well, right at the start of the account of the people of Israel, we have established, if you bless God's representative, you'll be blessed. And even their presence among you can have a favourable effect upon you. Because God is concerned for his representative. And there's a chance that you may get caught up in that concern. Well, Elisha is the prophet of Israel, and Israel is being ruled by a series of kings who, without exception, do evil in the sight of the Lord. However, the rebellion against God isn't confined to the king. It's become ingrained by now in the whole of Israel's society. Even the children have learnt to mock God's prophet, as we see back in chapter 2, verse 23. As we continue to read the book of two kings, we expect the situation to get worse. However, having said all this, the first miracle we have recorded in 2 Kings 4 
is based in Israel. The widow, Elisha, first meets, was married to the son of one of the prophets. So when a faithful Israelite approaches Elisha, he helps her. Provision is made so she can save her sons from slavery, pay off her debts, and have enough left over to live off. However, from this point on, in these two chapters, Elisha will mostly engage with people who are outside of Israel. So Elisha visits Shunem, where there there's a woman who provides him with food. After this, it becomes a bit of a pattern. Whenever Elisha travels through Shunem, the woman would provide food for him. And the lady recognises that Elisha is a holy man of God. And with the agreement of her husband, they make a room for him to stay when he visits. The Shunammite woman blesses God's representative. As a result, the woman, whose husband was old, and as a result they had no children, is blessed with a child. However, in a bizarre turn of events, the son dies. And rightly so, when the woman approaches Elisha, she asks, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? At the loss of her son, she finds herself in a position worse than if she had been left alone and never had a son. The woman refuses to leave Elisha when Gehazi goes ahead to lay Elisha's staff upon the child. She will not be happy until Elisha himself has seen to the boy. And it is only once Elisha visits the boy that the prayer is answered and God raises the son. A woman from Shunammite blesses a representative of God and is blessed. In the next two events, Elisha is with the prophets once again. They're suffering because of the famine. The first event, Elisha is able to neutralize a poisoned stew. And then in a second event, Elisha takes a limited amount of food and as prescribed by the Lord, is able to feed a hundred men and still have some left over. And then in 2 Kings 5, we're introduced to Naaman. He's from Syria. He's the commander of the army, and he's been extremely successful. However, notice this. this. Even though we're in Syria, it is Yahweh who's attributed to providing him with his success. However, despite all this, Naaman is a leper. We're then introduced to an unnamed girl, a girl who was taken from Israel, who now belongs to the household of Naaman. Had the girl not been part of the household, 
this story wouldn't have been included. Naaman would never have been known. But as with Joseph in Egypt, the present presence of this descendant of Abraham means blessing for her master. There's a contrast made between the slave girl who knows the prophet can heal Naaman and the king of Israel who tears his clothes in a panic. But then we know this is a king who has no regard for Yahweh and no regard for his prophet. When Elisha hears what's happening, he tells the king that instead of tearing his clothes, he should send Naaman to him. Now this is interesting. When Naaman arrives, instead of greeting Naaman, Elisha sends a messenger. Notice that it's the messenger who says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Naaman's angered by this apparent snub. He had this expectation that Elisha would come out and through some convoluted hocus-pocus, put on for a show, would then heal Naaman. But notice the motive behind Elisha's action. Elisha never meets Naaman. Throughout this whole episode, he intentionally keeps his distance. His only communication with him is via a messenger. His instruction will further keep Elisha away from him at the point when Naaman is healed. Elisha will have very little to do with the actual healing when it takes place. And all this is intended to have an impact upon Naaman. It won't be Elisha who has healed Naaman. It will be Yahweh who's made him clean. And it should come as no surprise that Yahweh can heal in the absence of his prophet. Naaman would take a little persuasion to carry out the words of the prophet, but once he did, he was clean. And then in order to further distance himself from the healing, Elisha refuses to profit from the healing and turns down Naaman's gift. Naaman has one final request before he leaves. Such is the impact that Yahweh has had upon him, he wishes to be pardoned for the times when he must assist his master in his worship in the house of Rimmon. He wishes to take two mules of dirt with him so that he can build an altar that he may offer burnt offerings to Yahweh. Elisha takes no credit for Naaman's healing, and as a result, Naaman attributes the glory appropriately. As he says, it's to the only God in all the earth. We began by reminding ourselves of the promise that was made by God to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Elisha had good reason to refuse the gifts that Naaman had offered, but his servant Gehazi 
undermines those reasons when he wishes to profit from the work of God. In doing so, he brings dishonor upon God, and his punishment is that the leprosy of Naaman will cling to him. It is a cautionary tale for anyone who would think it appropriate to profit from the ministry of God. And Gehazi only took a little compared to what Naaman had offered Elisha, all of which Naaman could afford. In Luke chapter 20, verse 47, Jesus describes those who devour widows' houses. And it's just before this, it's just before that he observes a poor widow who put in two copper coins into an offering box. Jesus commends her for giving all. And she gives all that she has in good faith, despite the fact she's giving it to a corrupt system. And there are those today who make themselves rich in the name of the ministry of Jesus. And they do so at the expense of those who cannot afford it. What we can say is their condemnation will be greater than that of Gehazi. Well, as we finish, we remind ourselves of the words of Jesus. He says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. The people of Israel have the promises of God. And yet they would squander the privileged position they held. But there were those who were outside who were keen to take advantage of the promises. Those who recognized the man of God. While those who were in the inner circle couldn't see what they had. And Jesus identifies this as not being unique to Elisha's day. During his own time on earth, he would have a much more a much more favourable response from those who were not his own. And yet Jesus is the ultimate fulfilment of that promise made back in Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse. Jesus is God's representative par excellence, for he is the Father's Son, and whoever accepts him will be blessed. But whoever curses him, well, they will be cursed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you sent your representative into the world for us and for our salvation we do thank you that by your spirit you've given us eyes to see, that we might understand that your son Jesus is your chosen anointed Messiah. We thank you for the gift of salvation you've given to us in him. And we pray for others 
that they too, when we speak to them of Jesus and introduce them to your representative, they might have eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the beginning there would be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about. That moment has arrived. Any thoughts or questions? Interesting question. So just to repeat for the recording, um, throughout the, once the Shunammite's son dies, she speaks to her husband, and he says it's all well, and she says all's well. And then she sees Elijah, uh, Elisha rather, and he says it's all well with, your hus- with yourself, with your husband, and with your son, and she says yes, all is well. Um, and then you get in it is in oh verse twenty seven and when she came to the mountains, the man of God, she came hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me, and has not told me. So what are we to make of all that? Let's see what we can do. Um, So, yeah, I'm not sure really. I'm not sure how far we can take this. I wonder whether there's just a From the Shumanite's woman's position, maybe it's simply that she just doesn't want to be um, diverted from her mission. So as far as she's concerned, she's going to Elisha because he is the person who can help her. No one else can assist her. So she doesn't want to tell her husband that the son has died because he might say, oh well, well, he might say, look, don't bother the holy man. What can he do? He, he won't be able to bring her alive. She's convinced Elisha's the man to see. So she, I think it's more kind of like, how am I going to play this so I end up seeing Elisha and I'm not diverted from that? So I think that's what's going on there. It's sort of tentatively put that there. Um, because then there's a similar... So once again you get this, it's Gehazi who's been told, run at once in verse 26, run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you, is all well with your husband, is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. So she's now speaking to the servant, Gehazi, 
And she wants to see Elisha. She doesn't want to speak to the middleman. So she says, all is well. I'm not going to be diverted from my task. Then she gets there, and I think that sort of idea that where Gahatsi's saying, don't bother the holy man, he's very important. That's when um, Elisha says, no, she can stay because something's clearly wrong. She's in distress, and I don't know about it because the Lord has kept it from me. Interestingly, Gehazi will act, when he goes to collect the money from Naaman, he assumes that Elisha won't know about it, but it's been revealed to Elisha here on this occasion. So sometimes there are things that the Lord will reveal to Elisha, and other times there are things that won't be. So I think that is what's going on there, if that's helpful. Any other questions or comments? There are troublemakers at the back. Go on, Archie, what's your question? Ah, oh, now you've caught you out, haven't they? Let's return to the proper questions. Susie. Yeah, good question. So, just to, so we've been talking in terms of um, Abraham. Just to repeat the re- question for the recording. We've been talking in terms of Abraham's descendants and how those promises are passed down those descend uh, Abraham's descendants. And then we've sort of highlighted the unnamed girl who was in Naaman's household uh, as being kind of a representative of God, and then also Elisha. So. How to think of them? Are they literally of the line of Abraham, or is something else going on there? Yeah. So obviously, when we're back in Genesis, things are very streamlined. In as far as um, you've got the promise that is given to Abraham, that promise is passed down to Isaac, and then Isaac has two children, and then that promise is given to Jacob, but not Esau. And so there's a sense in that the promise is going through. It gets a little bit... um, It starts to get a little bit muddier when you get to Joseph. So you've got Jacob, who's had 12 sons. So are we expecting a similar thing to Esau going one direction... Jacob going in the other, and and how's it going to work with the 12? But that's where things change slightly, because Jacob becomes, he's renamed as Israel, and his sons will be the 12 tribes of Israel. So at that point, it's not that one of the sons is chosen at the expense of the other 11, but rather that is going to become, you know, they're going to become the people of Israel, and therefore the promise will be through them. 
Um, there's kind of slightly other things that can be said, um, but that I think that's a that's a good starting place. Um, so then, when we get to sort of these examples, in one sense, Elisha is part of Israel. So as a result of that, he is um, he has that blessing. But there's also a sense in the you know he is one of the members of Israel. So there's a sense that goes through the people. But there's also a sense that he is um, one of God's prophets as well. And so therefore, he takes on that representative role because he's a prophet. Um, the girl, I mean, I think what's striking about her, particularly if we go back to what, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think Hannah picked up on this uh, a couple of weeks ago. You've got this obscure comment about these boys in chapter 2 verse 23 he went up from there to Bethel and while he was going up on the way some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying go up you bald head go up you bald head and he turned round and when he saw them he cursed them in the name of the Lord and and two she bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys from there he went on to Mount Carmel and from there he returned to Samaria and it's an odd little story why did they throw that in but actually I've kind of found it quite helpful to keep going back to it because you get this glimpse of this is typical life in Israel. These are what the children are doing when God's representatives, when you know, when God's prophet comes in. The parents should have been teaching them, "This is God's prophet. He is the holy man of God." Um, but they don't have respect for him; they ridicule him, which feels ironic, particularly then when you've got these Gentile people who are like, "Well, I'm going to make a room for him." Such a this is the impression this man of God has made for me. I'm gonna, there's gonna be somewhere for him to stay when he's visiting. And so, I think it also it kind of clarifies the situation of this young girl. Here is a young girl who has been kidnapped from her home in Israel and is living in a foreign land. But her response to that situation is, if you want to be healed, you need to see the prophet of my land. Because my God is the God who can heal. She's living in, or she was living in a land where the king rebelled against God, and yet she knew God. Um, her contemporaries were ridiculing the prophet, but she knows God. She's now been exiled from her land, and yet she still points to God as the one who can heal. So in that, once again, she's part of Israel, she's part of one of the tribes. Obviously, we don't know which, it's not said. Um, but there's also a sense in that she is following God in a land that doesn't follow God. And so therefore, her presence with Naaman means that he gets caught up in in the blessing that she's receiving sort of thing. So I, I think that's, that's the kind of thing that I was kind of going for, yeah. Time for one more. Nikki.
Yeah, yeah, sure. So we kind of saw that in the healing of Naaman, just to repeat the recording, um, he kept his distance and really didn't have much to do with the healing. And what's, Can we just explore again the significance of that? So it might be helpful. Obviously, when, when we go back to chapter 4 and see the healing of the Shunammite woman's son, she won't have it any other way. It, you know, it won't do for the servant to go and lay Elisha's staff upon him. She says, I'm not leaving you, Elisha, because I want you to come and I want you to do it. And then Elisha's involvement is that, in that is he closes the room, spends time alone with him. There's a very um, physical part of that healing and he prays to God and of course he's healed. But in that context, notice the order in which things have happened. The Shunammite woman knows Elijah, Elisha. She's met him, she's fed him. And she said, this is a holy man of God. And she goes as far as to create this, um, house, this room for him in her house. Um, and so she's already recognized that this is Yahweh's prophet. And so when she, she kind of doesn't need any more convincing. She, that's why she directly charges for Elisha, because he's the man who represents God. He's the one who can heal her son, and he wants him, uh, him to be involved. So in that sense, well, in, in this kind of occasion, it doesn't benefit Elisha from doing it from a distance or anything, because there's no purpose behind that, not, you know, Whereas all of a sudden we get with Naaman, Naaman's come with all his preconceived ideas of what it means for how a prophet works. So he has this expectation that the prophet will come and greet him and there'll be this um, you know, dance and uh, soiree put on and there'll be this, that and the other. And, and then he's brought all his gifts and his gifts will be handed over and he's got this expectation of what's going to take place. But I think what's going on is Elisha doesn't play up to any of that. Because at this point, Naaman doesn't know who Yahweh is. And he doesn't know who Elisha is. So his, this role is now a role of revelation. In the First of all, he gives him short shrift, sends a messenger. This is all you need to do. Go and wash in the river. Yeah, yeah, whatever. It'll happen. It'll, you'll be healed. He then, I mean, he's not even there when he's healed. Um, as if Elisha is to say, well, yeah, I mean, that's the sort of God that I worship. I don't have to be present. He's not dependent upon me. He's the creator of the whole world. Um, and that's why it's so important then that it comes to the gift. No, he doesn't. Why would he accept a gift? He's had nothing to do with it. It's not him that's healed. It's Yahweh that's healed. And it's all that that is then provides that impression that he can conclude the same thing that the Shunammite woman has already concluded. Well, it must obviously mean that your God is the God of the whole earth. Um, 
because he, he kind of heals without even his prophet needing to be there. So I think, I think, yeah, contrasting the two, I think it's quite helpful. You've got the Shunammite woman who knows he's the son of, uh, the um, prophet of God, and Naaman who doesn't, so that's why they're different, I think. Okay, let's stop there, because we could go on forever. We are going to sing our next song, which is King of Kings, Majesty.